that's something that I um, got into earlier this year. And so I've, um, I've made my first series of paintings that I'm going to be, um, I'm going to hang on to the paintings, but I decided to do a limited edition lithograph set that I'll hand number and sign, um, for, for each of the paintings in the series. There's three of them total. And, um, yeah, I was trying to think about ways that maybe I could, you know, figure out how to get this stuff out into the world. And I asked around a little bit, a couple of my buddies and, and acquaintances and whatnot. And, um, nobody really seemed to have any great idea about how to do it. And I don't really have any <laughs> contacts or friends or anyone in the art world. So I was like, well, I've always done everything else, kind of just do it yourself style. So what I do know how to do is put shows on and, um, why don't I just do, you know, a handful of shows and have my own art exhibit where I can just talk to people directly and tell them what I'm doing and show them the paintings and, and go from there. So that's what I've ended up doing. Just kind of taking things into my own hands, um, for these upcoming four shows. You kind of backdoored the gallery thing <laughs> into the show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe my real goal here with, with these paintings was number one, just to make them. Um, and it's been awesome because it's like a, a whole new creative outlet that I've kind of discovered, you know, in my early fifties that I, I didn't know really existed for me. I hadn't had a whole lot of interest in it up until recently. And when I finally sat down to, to do it after thinking about it for a while, it was just, it was just really cool. It was, it was something that was very cathartic and, um, something I, I hadn't realized I would enjoy so much. So it was great to make the, the paintings and, but you know, once you, once you create something, you, you want to share it with people. So, um, I don't know. It just, uh, I think the most important thing to me is just to share it to the people that have been supporting me creatively for all these years first. And, um, and beyond that, who knows, who knows if it'll, I don't even know how to define the word successful, which is what I was starting to grab for, but success isn't really that important to me. It's more about just being able to make something and, and, um, get it to people that will also have some kind of an appreciation for it you have very specific ideas of what success looks like as you're, you know, as you're growing up and as you're entering the world. And obviously it, obviously it tends to, to shift quite a bit over time, but you've seen, uh, you know, you, you certainly you've seen success on the music front. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, well, like you said, um, I think your idea of success shifts and changes over time. But I would just attribute the fact that I've been able to have a working career playing music and making records for the better part of three decades is um, that's enough definition of success for me because uh, it's something I've I've always wanted to do and I've been able to spend the better part of my adult life doing it. So it's been awesome, you know, and. I just I love being able to find new and creative ways to bring more 
art and and creative stuff to the public. So, you know, whether it's to hundreds, thousands, or millions, um, I think everyone's definition of success is a little bit different. But I think making the connection at all with anybody is uh, the first step. And uh, I feel lucky that I've been able to to make those connections throughout the years. You alluded to something. I, I guess the way you put it was was sparking that interest in in painting. What was it that really lit that fire for you? I've been I've been very involved in the graphic art, I guess, side of the band, the visual side, and um, it's something I struggled with in face to face in our very early years, and I felt like a lot of our t shirt designs were pretty bad. Um, our album covers have been kind of hit and miss through the years. There's some I like better than others. Um, but it's something I took an interest in early on in the band cause I wanted it to be better. And, um, so over the years, I feel like I've developed more of an eye and actually trained my eye a bit more, um, toward the aesthetics that I think work. And, and really it's, it's things that I like, you know, so having kind of self-trained my eye over, over time, um, it kind of led into this idea of creating visual art and I, you know, I'm not very good at the computer. So lo-fi is better for me. I, I, I know just enough about how to record music or, you know, slap together some kind of a graphic for an ad mat or whatever that I can, I can kind of find my way around but I'm not an expert at either of those things by any, by any measure. So going with some kind of analog approach, like painting was a little intimidating, but I felt like I at least had the, uh, the, the vision and the aesthetic for how to, um, you know, combine images in a way that, that I liked and thought were cool. And uh, other than that, it's just kind of a, a technique thing, and you know, I I could go a long way at learning more, but it was it was uh, it was really fun and and a cool like growth thing to go through the experience of of actually just getting some acrylic paint and some brushes and just actually go at it, you know. Intimidating is an interesting word. I mean, especially for something that you I don't know. It sounds like you didn't have any specific intention with necessarily sharing it with the word or with the world early on. Well, I did in that, um, that's the series is based on face to face lyrics. So <laughs> I knew I was going to be taking this to the, the fan base and supporters of the band because they're, they're themed with the songs, you know, and to me, it makes sense to build off of something that has been there has been the my like career focus for the last few decades. So I knew I would be sharing them with people, but to what scale, um, I guess still remains to be seen. And if, if they're nothing more than extension of the kind of universe of face to face, then that's totally cool with me. Cause I, I think it's, it's great. And it works within that universe as well. So are these like really the first paintings you've done? They are. Huh. Yeah. That's wild. I've never tried it before. <laughs> I mean, that's a good sign if you, again, 
found it intimidating early on, jumped into this thing and, and you still have to have a level of confidence in what you've produced in order to feel comfortable sharing that with people. For sure. Yeah. As a, as an artist, I struggle a lot with self doubt. So intimidation feels like a natural word, (laughs) you know, just because it's, Every time you put yourself out there, it's it's a it's a bit it's a bit unnerving to to have people um, criticize it. But hopefully, I've I keep telling myself every time I go through this process, like only the people that connect with it matter really. And if people don't get it, then it's not a big deal, you know. And don't take it personally and don't get yourself upset about it. But uh, you know, every time you kind of, every, every time you make something and you, you put a little bit of yourself into it there, it always kind of feels like a little bit of a, a self criticism. If people don't like it, you have to develop thick skin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's certainly that imposter syndrome creeps in if it's something that you've never tried before. Right. Right. I mean, I've, it's not the first time I ever held a paintbrush or put paint on anything. I've just never tried anything so deliberate. I mean, I've I've painted walls before. <laughs> so it wasn't entirely foreign to me. What does deliberate mean in that context? Deliberately creating images rather than just painting a wall white or whatever. To, to sort of draw a through line between this and the music that you've been putting out in the world, it's you are in both cases maybe putting yourself out there in a way that you hadn't necessarily previously. I mean, obviously, you've been playing with the band for, what, 30-some-odd years at this point, but there's a there's a big difference between playing with a bunch of other guys, you know, playing loud punk rock music in front of people, and then just standing in front of an audience with an acoustic guitar. That's it, it, It's all on you, and there's nothing to kind of to deflect that. Yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a rough one, and that's something that... Um... It's something that not everyone is cut out for, for sure. It's it was a it was a new experience, and I um I guess it's obvious that it was a new experience when I first tried it and foreign to playing with a group of guys. But what I meant by that was I hadn't anticipated what it would feel like until I actually did it, and then I was kind of like, "Whoa, dude! Like all eyes are on you. You know you." grab a chord the wrong way or sing a note off pitch or whatever. There's no, there's no wiggle room. You can't kind of blend it in with everything else that's going on to, to feel (laughs) to, to smooth it out or whatever. So um, yeah, you kind of have to be willing to accept what you're doing warts and all, and you have to be able to, to kind of, you know, allow yourself to just get past anything you might consider to not be perfect and rely more on just the, the performance that that's my kind of back. I've always fallen back on that. If I, if I ever try to be too, too um, thoughtful about exactly what it is that I'm doing, then I won't, I won't perform well. I have to kind of get into this, headspace of being a performer and and try to feel more like I'm flowing with the emotion and the feeling 
and let that part of myself come out. And that's usually where I find the best connection and the most success doing this. So if I focus too much on the technicality of it, then I'm going to beat myself up about it. And that can be very intimidating. And when you're on stage, it can, you know, make you very self-aware. Like you almost want to drop your guitar and run off stage. But if you, (laughs) if you throw all, if you put all, push all that aside and, and connect with the emotion and try to, try to read the emotion of the audience and see if you can bring them along with you. And then once you feel confident that you've made that connection, then, you know, you're on to, you know, you're on to something, you're on the right track. I've had to struggle with losing my uh, standards for thinking I have to be the best guitar player or the best singer. And remember that really the thing that has gotten me through face to face all these years is connecting with that emotion and and performing from that place. There's so much more emphasis, though, on your singing when you're in that situation. I, I assume it's, and it sounds like what you're describing is is, is 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 kind of being in your own head too much. Is that, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it takes work, and I'm guessing it's the sort of thing that takes, you know, multiple times of doing this in order to really feel comfortable enough to be in the moment. Yeah, it, you're right. And, um, you know, I've been, I've been sort of moonlighting with acoustic performances now for two or three years. And I still feel like I'm, I'm chipping away at it. I'm still finessing it into something that isn't quite there yet, but I know will be the more and more that I work on it. So, whereas, you know, with something like face to face, I feel like I've got that one pretty pretty well down. <laughs> but since performing solo acoustic is so new, that's still something that I am refining. For something like that that is so different, um I I mean I suppose it is and it isn't. It is it's still music and and at its essence it's still you and and your guitar, but how do you dip your toe into that I mean, is it a case where you just kind of have to i guess rip the band-aid off and and just do it yeah it is um the first time i performed solo acoustic was a disaster i think in my own brain um and this was really before i was intentionally pursuing you know setting myself up as a as a viable acoustic artist it was just one of those things where a promoter was like, Hey, it's great that face to face is doing this show. If you'd also like to come and do an acoustic set, we'd like to have you for that. And I thought, Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll give that a try. And I got up there and kind of froze and <laughs> didn't really know what the heck I was doing. And then the band, um, we put an acoustic album out. And so we did go out and play quite a few shows with the songs acoustic that kind of, I feel like that sort of, that was like training wheels to kind of help teach me this other sort of, um, emotion or vibe like to connect to because the punk rock one in face to face is very specific. It's kind of hard to describe, but I can kind of tap right into that where the acoustic one is a little bit, it's not about like the angst or the volume or the speed. It's 
you know, you have to find another another emotion to connect to there that's very different from anything else face to face did um or does. It's all been a process, you know, finding finding those things that work that you can tie into emotionally uh, for the performance. Stripping the songs down and, and doing acoustic versions of them must have been a very, I guess, educational experience for you. And not just from the standpoint of learning to perform acoustically in front of people, but also getting at the the elements, getting at the basics of the song. You know, one of those cliches that you hear a lot and there's probably something to it is this idea of if a song is really good, then you you should be able to perform it on, on any instrument. But, you know, with the face to face songs specifically, these were songs that were written to be punk rock songs. And, you know, in most cases songs that were written, as you said, to be played fast and loud. What was that process like translating them into something in some ways that was that polar opposite yeah well it actually was less of a process than you think because we have we have a a a pretty vast catalog of songs that we were only trying to make one album so I I know from my perspective, I just tried to gravitate towards songs I felt would translate well on any instrument. Like, and like you said, I even though it is a bit of a cliche, I do think not to say that you know prog rock songs or or very abstract songs or whatever can't also be good. But I think if you've written you know a song that is concise and has a hook. It should be able to translate to just a guy sitting down at the piano or a guy sitting down with an acoustic guitar or whatever, even playing it on a kazoo. If you write a melody that's infectious, that's there's definitely something to be said for that. I do definitely subscribe to that, even if it's a cliche. And so because of that, I think we went in search of songs that worked in that regard, and it just so happens that a lot of them happen to be songs that are you know popular in our in our live set anyhow and um but i think the real the real struggle was more finding an emotional uh connection that worked because it's super easy playing faster aggressive music to kind of tap into those emotions the 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 more angsty kind of thing i guess maybe it was easier or what i had to search for was like finding a a more melancholy or sad emotion or or finding a spot on the emotional spectrum somewhere that that worked for this music once we had changed it because it's it was almost kind of academic just going okay well here are the chords we normally play let's turn the distortion off the amps let's slow the song down a little you know, Dennis is a fantastic guitar player, and Scott, who plays bass, is probably even a better guitar player. And so they were both real instrumental in like finding all these great chord phrasings and and um, pull offs and the little pieces to put in in spots that were long or maybe kind of boring that might have been filled in with 
you know, if it was faster. And um, so once we had all of the music arranged, then the challenge for me was kind of finding the proper emotion to sell it, you know, as a singer. And um, that really has also been my, my search as I write and record new material because I, I am ultimately hoping to finish a solo acoustic album here within the next, oh, hopefully six months or so. And, um, and also, you know, this is a little different, but it, it kind of leads into where we were and where I'm going. It was pretty easy to bring an Americana kind of vibe. There's definitely pop music in there, but um, even kind of like this 80s melodic pop sensibility that ended up coming out in a lot of those songs because we're big fans of like Psychedelic Furs and The Cure and The Smiths and stuff like that. But also this like Americana element, and that's really more where I'm leaning with my solo material. So it's put me on a path of discovery to try and figure out like what it is about Americana and even classic country that I relate to that I feel like is something I can tap into and, and, and create from, you know, making it an extension of, of the stuff that I like, because there's a lot of it that I don't. But I, the, the stuff that I do, I really want to, I want to um, use as, as an influence and hopefully do justice to when I'm creating my own music from this foundation. And I found out I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of like 60s classic country stuff. And um, this might sound silly, but you know, Old later in life, I've discovered that I really love George Jones, <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> my music appreciation throughout life has been bizarre. When I was a kid, it was just whatever I could get my hands on. We lived in a really different world. There was no internet, so basically, you just go into the record store and whatever the guy behind the counter would tell you to listen to is maybe your best shot at finding new music. And then, you know, your friends start to tell you what's cool or you divorce, you know, you form these social groups and people like, Oh, check this record out. And then we had the internet and, and, um, I feel like popular music, like commercial popular music has become so homogenized that, and granted, you know, I'm a little older I just turned 54 this year. Um, I've always been a bit of a music snob, but I'm snobbier now than ever when it comes to like current pop music. I'm just like, oh, those damn kids, whatever they're listening to, I don't get it. It's kind of fun to take that role as the the cranky old guy now. But I I found like maybe for the last 20 or so years, my musical discovery has been going back to discover things that I either was too young to get or things I missed at the time and had to go back and rediscover. And man, there's just such a gigantic wealth of music out there that you could, I've spent a lot of my adult life just kind of searching and, and going back a lot. Cause I, I don't find a whole lot that's current and modern 
now that really sparks much of my interest. Not to say that people don't still make good music. Of course they do. Oh uh, yeah, like I said, a lot of it is me looking for foundations and beginnings of where things started and how they took off. There's an interesting barrier of entry when it comes to country music specifically because I, you know, maybe a little bit earlier in life, I, you know, in college, I think is when I really started um, realizing that there was good, that there was good country in the world. You know, you, you mentioned George Jones or you know, like Towns Van Zant was a a really big one for me as well. And yeah. I think it's really, you know, you're, you're right now you're describing really kind of top 40 pop music and, and country was kind of a, the tip of that spear and in, in, in a big way where there's been really bad country has dominated the charts for a long time now. And it, I, that was certainly a big part of the reason why I was so hesitant to embrace it at, at all. I mean, one, as somebody who grew up listening to punk rock, it felt corny and I had to get past a, a point in my life when I um, cared really about things being corny, but also that the vast majority of what I had been exposed to was frankly not good. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you. And there was very little of it that I ever liked throughout my life. I think maybe that's why now I I have a bit of an affinity for this this classic stuff which you know the I'm so far removed from the lyrics and the time and everything of it that I I don't find it bad because I find it campy almost. I mean it it's it makes me it, it kind of it's kind of funny. I mean it's in a way and I know it wasn't intended to be. It's about womanizing men that are behaving terribly and and uh, it's very sexist actually the women from their perspectives are always singing about how they should be standing by their man and propping up their guy and all this kind of stuff when he's saying hey this woman i'm tied down to has become a bummer and i'm really in love with you you know so I'd rather be on this new thing. And so the men are cheating on their wives and, and, um, and they're sad about it and because <laughs> it's just, it, it's hilarious actually. Um, so that part of it makes it feel okay for me to listen to. Cause I, it's like a world I have no connection to whatsoever, but because of that, it allows me to explore the melody and the music a little bit more and, and really find connections there that, that I, I like, you know, musically. So yeah, it's been cool. And it's not to say that I plan on making this classic country record that sounds like Loretta Lynn and Connie Smith and whoever else, but it's been fun listening to just kind of get this foundational thing. I, I think ultimately my record will be probably end up more in the Americana lane because I mean, that term is a bit more all encompassing there. There can be elements of country, but there can be elements of folk and pop. And, and um, I like that space a little bit better because it gives you a little bit more freedom genre wise. I mean, also too, you know, I I'm not interested in making music that I don't feel is genuine to me. So 
doing something other than face-to-face is a tricky one. And I, the last thing on earth I want to do is pop on a cowboy hat and go, hey, everybody, I'm country now. Because if it's not authentic, then it's not real. So I am doing the research to find the connections. And I'm finding that a lot of the music that I'm drawn to is stuff that I was soaking in as a kid in the 70s. And whether or not I even knew I liked it, there's a familiarity there now that is nostalgic and and comforting to me. That's been my kind of jumping off point. And um, as I explore and find what speaks to me and what I think I can use to run through my you know, creative recycling machine and see what I spit out on the other side. It's, it's been fun to, um, to go through this process earlier, uh, as you were discussing face to faces music over the years, you used the word angst and angst is something that, you know, that, that is very closely tied to, to punk rock. The, and, and, and in a lot of ways, like, and, and, and this isn't casting aspersions at all, but, you know, I, obviously I listen to a lot of it, but in a lot of ways, um, punk rock is traditionally a teenage genre. I mean, like rock and roll, you know, obviously traditionally is a, a teenage genre as well. So this, this idea of opening it up to different emotions is, is an interesting one. One thing that you get out of classic country, I'm thinking of, in this instance, somebody like Hank Williams specifically of it, it almost doesn't matter what he's singing, but there's so much there's so much emotion in his voice that it's transcendent. Absolutely, and you've definitely you've tapped into to what it is that I'm looking for. <laughs> I'm looking for these performances and this emotion way more so than the. The, the lyrical content. Now that's going to be the challenge for me is to, to find out what, what it is that I want to be singing about. Um, because again, it's, I, I don't want to, there's a lot of narratives in Americana and country and that's cool. I'm struggling with the idea of writing narratives because I've never really done them and um, I don't want it to be corny (laughs) and it could so easily go awry, you know? Um, But, you know, I I'm toying around with the idea of writing a gunfighter ballad and maybe a murder ballad or two on this thing. So I don't want it to be overboard on the darkness, but the gunfighter ballads are, are campy, you know, they're, they don't really seem overly dark. A murder ballad could get very dark, but there's almost this kind of tongue in cheek thing about them because when you listen to them, nobody really ever gets the sense that it actually happened. Number one, or that there was this heavy weighty malice intended in these. I mean, Johnny cash did it pretty well and was pretty dark with it all. But, um, for me, it's nothing like, say, Nick Cave, when he made an album of that title. Those songs are dark as hell, and they kind of make you feel a little sick to your stomach if you listen to the lyrics or read them while you're listening, you know. Um, 
I like the idea of a narrative because it can be a, a bit campy, but um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's it'll be a little bit uncomfortable. It, it is the the thought of it is a little uncomfortable to me, but I like that because that means I'm I'm covering some new territory. I'm ta- I'm challenging myself in places that I I haven't been before. Much like the painting. I'm more excited about doing new things and trying new creative outlets as I mature in life rather than just resting on my laurels. Face to face is great and um it continues to be great, but I'm not satisfied just kind of being the one trick pony. So these other outlets have been challenging and uncomfortable, but I think those things are they're, they're supposed to be if they're if they're going to help you grow as a person or present something to you that's meaningful or, or worthwhile in the end. There's this interesting thing that, that happens as, as we get older where, um, you know, we, where, where we do things that we would have written off as corny earlier in life. A lot of times in a lot of cases, it's because of, you know, time and experience and context, but also, I was watching the, I guess, the director's commentary that you and Matt were doing for the Big Choice album, and, and oh, cool! When you were talking about disconnected, it, it, and the sort of fight, uh, the the pushback you gave as far as you know, I guess, recording this song for a third time and then putting it on that record, there was a a very pervasive sense in punk rock in general. Certainly, something that very much carried into the '90s, but. Um, certain things that you wouldn't do because they weren't punk rock enough. And, and, you know, that was the era when selling out that concept still meant a lot to people. And I wonder how much of, I guess how much of growing up and, and getting older is, um, recognizing the things that you, put off for almost arbitrary reasons when you were younger. Yeah, I think um I think that specific example we we resisted the idea re-recording the song and being considered a sellout because we were basically young, inexperienced and had the very limited perspective of thinking that it would hurt our career. Even the notion that we should record that sketch came from this idea that we would be criticized for recording it again and for obviously trying to be successful by taking it to the radio or whatever. And when I think back to my position on, on that whole thing, it's a bit embarrassing to me because it was very, it was very, um, you know, kind of childish. <laughs> um, because ultimately it didn't matter. You know, people criticized us for recording the song three times anyway. The sketch didn't matter at all. People formed their own conclusions. Being a sellout is something that you consider yourself to be not something other people can tell you that you are or not. And, um, 
you know, we were too naive to, to even grasp that concept at the time. And, uh, a little bit more inner strength might've helped propel us through. But I think what led us to make these decisions that would have people criticize us and call us sellouts during that time was really just survival because we knew that if we didn't do some deals with certain people or, or take a, take an advance for this record or a publishing deal or whatever, that we were going to just still be working our jobs and in construction or whatever, and that we would never really have a chance to advance or to get the opportunity to play music rather than having to grind it out at a construction job. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't like we got so much money that we could just quit forever, but we got enough that we could go, well, let's go try this out for a couple months, you know, (laughs) hopefully we'll generate enough to make another couple months happen. And, um, so yeah, ultimately none of that stuff mattered. And, and what's so stupid about the whole sellout criticism of the nineties is that we were, we were very sensitive to it, but dude, like a decade later, nobody cared. (laughs) bands propping themselves up on the backs of the likes of us and many others that were just running to the bank with their bags of money unapologetically raising their t-shirt prices raising their ticket prices and nobody cared and nobody called them sellouts (laughs) so the only people we ultimately really hurt were ourselves what it did teach me though is there are there are ways to be sensitive and aware of what it is your supporters want from you. And um, it's important to listen to them and to try and, and to, if it can be defined, give them what they want, you know, like if people are griping about a ticket price being too high Maybe you work on it for the next show. If if people are upset that they weren't able to get a limited edition of a piece of merch or a record or something that you put out, make it more widely available. Get your communication better. It's it's important, I think, t- for your own what do you call it, credibility or whatever, um, to be. And this is so cliche, but if you're if you're true to yourself and you know you've done everything you could to try and keep your connection open and to cater to your supporters, then I think you're, that's like the antithesis of being a sellout. And that's something that we learned well after that whole sellout phase. And I think something that we became more attentive to over time. And it's, it's something I still try to, to keep up on. Obviously, in that specific instance, you know, you did go along with the label and it it sounds like things worked out well. I mean, obviously, there's a, to me, it seems like a very clear cut case of that, the success of that song and then that album really being what propelled you and probably a big part of um, why you're still able to do music 30 years later. Yeah, I mean, it's the, really the only radio single we ever had that had any kind of staying power and any real real spin. So 
had we had we listened to our our peers and not <laughs> put that song on the album or re-recorded it or said no way man you're not going to get that single for radio who knows if we ever would have had any you know real shot at being able to continue to do this so sometimes it's it's good to just follow your gut and that that's what we we didn't we didn't actually really like the idea the sketch that we did wasn't entirely like fictional but we went along with it anyway because we were hopeful that if we played ball and put the song on the second album too that they would continue to market the song and get it on the radio actually what what happened is the song was already on the radio and the real story is the label came to us and said, if you'd record this for the next album, we'll continue to promote it at radio. But if you release a new album and give us a new focus track, we don't know if you'll get radio for an, a new single. You already are getting it, right? We're like we're in the middle of promoting it. So the fact that you made an album doesn't change that. And you should really try to keep dumping gasoline on this fire over here. And that's really why we put it on there. Are there examples or are there instances where, you know, where, where you didn't follow through in that way? Or, I mean, are there things from that era that you didn't do because you were afraid of your image or selling out that you've, I, I guess, come to regret? Wow. That's a good question. Probably, probably hundreds. <laughs> Nothing specifically jumps out, though. Those are the ones that I've I've let go from my memory because they're too painful. No, um, I I don't know specifically. Probably a lot of little things that added up to 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 a negative. Um, nothing that springs to mind in general, though. There's some weird stuff that's happened throughout our career, like. I remember a while back seeing a, a someone sent me a link to a YouTube video. I think it was Mars Volta had put up and they're playing somewhere and they're like, yeah, we just want to say fuck face to face. Cause we asked them if we could open for them a long time ago here in Chicago. And they said, no. And now we're playing a much bigger place than they would ever play here. So fuck those guys. And I was like, Man, that's a bummer. I I totally am sure I never said no that they couldn't play on one of our shows, number one. And number two, I wouldn't even know that that would be something that would stick out in anybody's brain that they would <laughs> say it from the stage. So there's weird stuff. There's unintended consequences that happen throughout your career just by working with other people. Like when you choose to have a tour manager or an agent or a manager. Once you have people speaking on your behalf in the public, all kinds of crazy stuff can happen. And um, unfortunately, it it only sticks around as a bad reflection on your band, whether or not you had any responsibility in actually saying it or doing it, unfortunately. So that's one of those weird examples. Um, yeah. I don't have a specific example of, of something we decided to do that, that hurt us. But one thing that does come to mind, it was something we really tried for that we couldn't make happen. 
that hurt us was when we made our self-titled album, we, uh, I Won't Lie Down started getting played at K-Rock and, um, we couldn't really get an answer like who leaked apparently it quote unquote, and I'm making finger quotes in the air leaked to K rock in LA. And so they started playing it on the furious five and, um, what happened? So we, we were stoked. We were happy because it was working at radio and it was gaining all this momentum and getting phones and stuff. And the problem was, is that there was a much tighter, no, there was a much longer timeline on record releases at the time, because we're talking about 1995, 6, 96, 7, somewhere in there. So there was this much longer release timeline, and the label wasn't planning on releasing the album for like two months or something, but K-Rock was already playing the single, which was a huge problem at the time, because if your single started getting played, but your album release date was too late, you risked having the... Li- having the radio station drop it. So that's such a weird problem, right? I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and at the time K rock was like the radio station that all of the other alternative rock stations in the country looked to. So we called a meeting at a and M with the radio guy and, um, the whatever powers that be. And the, the band was there and our manager, Rich Egan was there at the time. We sat at this big table and, uh, we're like, all right, guys, K-Rock's playing the single. We're here today to ask you if you would move the release date up of the record. And it was just a firm no from everybody. And we thought for sure it was going to be one of those high-five meetings where we're like, guys, K-Rock's playing the record, man. We got this lick. Let's just get the record out, and it's going to be smooth sailing, you know? And um, they all kind of dug their heels in and went, no, that's just not how we do things here at corporate record land. And the program director was kind of pissed, or the the guy that does radio, because he's like, well, we never gave it to them, so I don't know why they're playing it. I'm just going to call them and tell them to stop playing it and wait for two months till the album comes out. And we're like, no, don't do that. Please don't do that. But if you don't move the release up, they're going to quit playing the song. And then it might be really difficult to get them to listen to anything from this album. And um, they just dug their heels in and said, nope, it's coming out when it comes out. And we don't care what K-Rock does. They don't run us. And, uh, and K-Rock dropped the song. <laughs> and unfortunately, never picked up a song from our self-titled record, which is our, was our best-selling record at the time and was kind of our, like, upward moving apex toward sales and popularity and everything else um, with no help from K rock. So we, that was not exactly what you asked where it was a a moment where we said no to something, but um, we, it was something where we really tried and the corporateness of the label bit us in the ass. And that was one of the big ones where I was kind of like, okay, now I know why everybody says don't go to a corporate label. <laughs> now I know why major labels are so bad because everybody's full of shit and they're not really out for the bands. They're just out to save their own ass like any corporation. Obviously, that is true. And, and I suspect that that's only gotten worse as the industry has you know continued to, to eat itself. But there's no 
from my you know very uh, distant perspective, there's there's no question in my mind that that was the right choice for you at the time because there was there was a window, man. Like there was a window right there, and you know Green Day and Rancid and all those bands were a big part of it. Where like I, I think you saw that there, that opportunity was there, and that it probably wasn't going to last a long time, and they, that you had to shoot your shot. Oh yeah, yeah, and. Unfortunately, I think that was our our actual shot right there, and um, and we we weren't able to capitalize on it. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that we didn't try our asses off in everything that we had under our power. I mean, we toured on that self titled record for two straight years. After two years, I remember going back to the A&R guy and I was like, all right, dude, I know we've been at this a long time, but just one, we got this tour. God, I forget who it was opening for someone big and we needed the tour support. And they're like, yeah, we just, we were not going to spend any more money promoting this album. It's time to go make a new record. And um, we're like, but we want to keep touring. We, we don't want to give up on this album. And we've been working really hard, got off to a rocky start. But we're pretty sure that if we just keep promoting it eventually, you know, and they just kind of pulled the plug on us. And then that whole big Seagram's merger happened and uh, everything started kind of imploding in the major label world. Well, I mean, every label started getting gobbled up and consolidating into these, you know, three giant behemoths. And then so we managed to jump off of A&M before we got dropped, which was awesome and saved us a lot of legal nonsense. And then we made a solo or we made a live record and we made a, a kind of a rock record that sort of shocked everybody and um, kind of just sort of started doing what we wanted, whether or not it was, commercially feasible we just started listening to our our creativity and just making records that we really wanted to make and kind of started thinking less and less about radio and and all of that kind of stuff because by this time like i said we toured two years on the self-titled record so we started um we started developing a pretty decent touring business you know we could go out on the road and and um and draw people and make money so focusing much more on that and making the music that that we wanted to free from any um any expectations of like writing the next disconnected or any nonsense like that i mean that's healthy for a lot of reasons but one of the major ones i mean it's 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 so funny to hear that mars volta story because that is it's such a weird impulse to me to to get on stage and and to I mean, you're not even from Chicago. It's just such a it's such a bizarre thing. But but there is you know there there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of jealousy. This isn't just the music industry. Obviously, this is life in general. This is something that I've had to work on in in my in my own life. Is to not. I mean, you alluded to the next generation of bands, and I I've got a good idea of who I think you're talking about. But you have to get to a place. Hopefully, you get to a place where you can just focus on making the best thing you can make because it's really easy to let that jealousy pull you down. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That was part of my 
personal journey that I went through in, in being in this band is, and it was a hard, it was really hard for me to learn. Um, but I, I, at some point had to stop looking at the landscape and comparing our career path with every other band that was playing punk rock or emo or pop punk or whatever the hell because I was making myself crazy with it. I'd look over and be like, why is that band bigger than us? They hadn't done X, Y, Z. And how come this band's getting the easy treatment, you know? And it just really just takes you to such a negative place. That's just so completely unproductive. (laughs) You know, it's just not, it's not a good, it's not a good look. It's not a good place to be, but it's something I did struggle with for a little while. And, um, Coming out on the other side, it's it's much better when you just go, you know what, the only thing I actually really have control over is the music that I make and the career decisions that I make and the shows that I book and play. And uh, whatever whatever else happens in the world is cool. I'm not really going to be able to do much to alter it. And my success does not rely on the success or failure of others. So... Ultimately, I, I I learned the lesson, but I did struggle with it for a little while. I'm sure I'm not the first person to tell you this, but it's it, there is this thing that happens to. I mean, obviously, he's been doing that forever. There, there's a thing that happens to a lot of punk singers who've been around for a long time that they do that they pick up an acoustic guitar. There, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them kind oh, yeah. of doing the I'm the, well the folk thing. Yeah, <laughs> is, is there? Could you put your finger on 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 why that is? Well, you touched on something earlier. You said uh, how the songs that we picked for the acoustic album was it hard to get them to translate from punk rock to that? And and I I thought of something that I didn't mention at the time. Those first three face to face records, I wrote them on acoustic guitar. I sat in my room or living room or whatever, and most of those songs were written on acoustic guitar because. I didn't really have like any kind of rig at home to play distorted or whatever. And um, so they did already kind of work on an acoustic guitar, just one person and a guitar. <laughs> um, of course, they were fleshed out in the rehearsal space, but the original ideas were done very much that way. So in some ways, I've never, it's not foreign to me to play and sing on acoustic. But I used to just bang out these, you know, very primitive bar chords to write. And nowadays I'm trying to learn how to have a little bit better technique and play these more full sounding chords with transitions and stuff like that. Um, why do punk rock singers go to that? I don't know. It's, 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 there's something about, punk rock that sort of relates to I won't say country in the way that we think of it when you say country and you think of like Garth Brooks or Reba or even whatever is currently happening right now which I couldn't even tell you but country in the sense of its most basic form of just being music that is for regular people 
And that's what we mean when we talk about country music. It's music of the country, music that represents culture. But we're talking about the early culture of America as when we talk about country and Americana, right? Like the very beginning of it. So I guess because it is music that is meant to be, I don't want to use the word folk because that's its own genre, but like folk art is, is art that's created by regular people. Punk rock is supposed to be that music that's created. It's music for the everyman. It's music for regular people. You don't have to be a really skilled guitar player to have a successful punk band. And I think much in the same way, if you really distill country down to its its basic parts, it's meant to be music meant for regular people, for regular folks. And because of that, I do think there is this connection. So us punk rockers that maybe don't want to run around or jump as much as we age that acoustic guitar starts looking real good. <laughs> you can you can bring the songs down a couple of keys so you're not, you know, singing in a place that maybe your voice doesn't hit so easy anymore. It's a lot more relaxed, but you can still bring in some of the darkness and some of the attitude and some of the tone from punk rock into this because plenty of rebellious attitude exists within country as well. Again, country elicits these visions of like the worst pop stuff. So maybe I shouldn't be using that. Americana is probably a safer term, but um, do you know what I mean? I think there it's because that there is this connection that it's so easy to transition from one to the other. Uh, although I don't think it's super easy to do it well. 